This is Thomas DePaulo. This is Dole. Hey, this is Melon Bread. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. On this episode of The Green Box, we discuss how to manage expectations and adapt to players who come to the hobby through listening to actual plays, and why that isn't necessarily a bad thing. After that, the cast looks back on the first Delta Green scenarios we ever wrote, and discuss how they might be improved. So, I recently read an article, um, where, uh, which is based off of a Reddit post where a uh, Dungeons and Dragons game master was posting. Uh, he was lamenting the fact that uh, several people at his gaming table had kind of come into the role playing game world because of a popular actual play show, Critical Role, and they were kind of upset that that their expectations that were set really high from watching this, you know, produced, acted, you know, uh, high level show were not the same at their local gaming table. Um, and he was worried that it was going to, you know, tear his group apart. And, you know, he basically said, you know, how do I escape? Or how do I beat the, the Matt Mercer effect? The Matt Mercer is the dungeon master who runs the critical role team through things. I wonder if this ever happened in like amateur wrestling clubs and schools and stuff where people joined and then were disappointed. It wasn't at all like WWE. There was a, a South Park episode about this. Oh, was there really? Yeah. But um, Kevin, for those of us in the audience who are not familiar with the world of actual plays, what's critical role? And who's Matt Mercer? You told me who Matt Mercer is. He's Critical Role, but what is Critical Role? Yeah, so Critical Role is a it's a bunch of voice actors who are pretty experienced and who are playing who are experienced in both acting and also experienced in Dungeons and Dragons. Get together every night and they live stream it, and then they re- it's recorded for YouTube and podcasts and whatnot. This D and D campaign they're going through um, it kind of kicked off this whole recent you know the last couple of years. There's been a lot of actual plays. They've become much more prevalent because of YouTube and they're more accessible now and it's also brought a lot of new players into role playing you know like traditionally you had to have some like your nerdy bespectacled friend be like come over to my parents basement check out this dungeons and dragons game and now you don't have to have that interaction uh you can just learn about it online and say that sounds fun let me go find a game and the issue again the issue comes up is that the game you find in real life is not as good as the you know again like highly produced highly acted so Thank you for giving me a basic idea of what the show is like. And going back to this thread of comments about it, I'll point out that that there were other comments in that thread that were even more like difficult stories that people had about experiences. Like not even because the guy in the original post was just worried that this might happen. It was about the possibility that it could happen. But there were other people on the thread who said that they had basically stopped running the game for some people because they kept saying, why aren't you doing it like this show? And them trying to say, like, that's not how, how I run this game had not worked. And so they were like, all right, if I can't give you what you want, if you're going to keep being like this, um, bye. So this kind of comes back to a, a through a through point, I think, that we've talked about uh, multiple times on this show, is that it's important to have a conversation with your players about to make sure you're playing, you're running the same game they want to play and they're playing the same game that you want to run. Um, so one of the, one of the points that is lamented in that Reddit post is, you know, in the show, all the like doors have an Irish accent or, or whatever. So when the, the guy who's running the game has this cr- really cool crafted dwarf, you know, society he's built up, but he doesn't make them have Irish accents. People are like, well, I don't, 
get it. It's not what a door sounds like to me. But if you discuss ahead of time what you're trying to do there, you can kind of avoid that. And I do, I, I do want to just uh, just note that. So I mean, Matt, Matt Mercer did reply to that post, and I think he was pretty. He, he made a pretty professional post, but I think you could tell he was just kind of saddened because I think he truly does love playing the game and running the game and wants to bring more people in. And anytime, I think anytime someone can point to something and say, here's something you did and here's why people don't play the game anymore, that, that's got to hit hard. The thing about that is that that was far from the first time that I'd heard someone say that. And it wasn't necessarily always about that show specifically, but I had definitely heard people voice concerns that the unrealistic expectations caused by essentially polished media versions of the hobby had given people unrealistic expectations and had caused problems later on. Yeah, so let's let, let's take it away from the critical role example and just kind of generalize it. You know, whether it's, you know, having a chance to play with the people who write or run a game, you know, sitting down with the developers like at Gen Con and then, you know, getting spoiled or whether it's, you know, um, you know, reading material like a read through of a campaign and then not having your own campaign live up to it or whatever how can we or how do you deal with one as a player maybe having unreasonable expectations and how to set the right expectations and as a handler you know, also as a dm is that, how, do you, how do you deal with that but i think there's also you know, the easy answer is just don't involve yourself in that kind of media but i think you can learn a lot from actual plays and from watching the developers run games and reading stuff that they've written about how to run games so there's value there you don't lose that I think the first point uh, is it just comes with an understanding that not every DM is Matt Mercer. Okay, but how do you make people understand that? It's it's not just that they don't understand that it's that way. It's that they want it to be that way. The one thing about Matt is that he puts a lot of effort into the role-playing aspect of it and also like the descriptions when he runs combat. And that's something that's pretty easy to take away. Like, uh, you know, it's pretty boring when you roll the dice when you're in the middle of combat you say all right that's a hit and then you roll the dice and you say you take eight damage and then you move on to the next person because that's like super boring i mean you say that and yet i've played games where that's the game and we all have a good time well yeah because the alternative is that you spend 45 minutes describing how a missed attack missed the target and then the other five people at the table are on their phones waiting for their turn because the more rich narrative description the more of a rich tapestry you paint the longer it's going to take and combat already takes way too long in pretty much every game so i see where you're coming from but i'm gonna tell you right now i'm not doing that i do a little bit of window dressing in that in the combat situation but i don't do it in delta green mostly because it's just people shooting each other and that can't get too intensive but definitely in dungeons and dragons i narrate that kind of thing and it comes with how long you make those narrations and being vigilant for your players doing that kind of thing and being like, hey, let's take a step back here and make sure you guys can be invested. I'm all for like a creative interpretation of what the, the mechanical interaction said happened, but I'm just saying that I've been at tables where the guy spent a long time negotiating the effects of every missed hit, and it's like, Jesus, can we just keep it moving already? I mean, I think like everything, moderation is key. A critical hit or a fumble, you want to get a little more, a little flowery on it. Oh, no, that's the one That's the one that I heard people complain about the most, is that people really don't like the Eben Natural 20 meme, and that is something that their show gets accused of perpetuating all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, they, they like stand up and cheer and stuff whenever someone rolls a natural 20. That's It's 5% of all rolls, fucking get over it. I mean, but it's it's nice when your character rolls that and you get to do a bunch of damage, like that's, that's fun. 
I'm I, see. I told you this section would just be me, me throwing rocks. Do do they roll to confirm? Well, no, no because, because they're playing that's, fifth. Yeah, it's uh, not Pathfinder. It's fifth edition. Actually, wait. Did they roll to confirm at three point five, or is that exclusively a Pathfinder? I think that's edition? Pathfinder. No, they roll to conf- you roll to confirm in three point five. You may even roll to confirm in. AD&D, I'm not sure about that. Well, thank you for joining us on our TSR podcast. Yeah. We do a deep dive <laughs> yes, into this. Let's, let's, let's steer the ship The dungeon back. box. I had a point, but you guys have tangented it so hard that I have lost it. So I'm going to try to, try to get it back here. <laughs> do you even remember what we were talking about before? We decided that we were going to pull back and talk in general about how to players and GMs should manage expectations when newcomers are coming to the hobby through the medium of highly professional tightly produced uh, APs. And then we zoomed way, way back in on, Mac- on um, Matt Mercer again. I'm yeah, not sure so how let's, that happened. let's not. So I joked earlier that it used to be the only way to get someone into Dungeons & Dragons or into Delta Green or whatever was to, you know, drag them to your parents' basement and, uh, you know, force them to play this weird nerd hobby. So I do think that there is a huge value in, you know, whether it's a, a podcast about Delta Green or a, you know, an actual play somewhere or, or a write-up of an actual play, showing that to people who are not traditional role players who may be interested in the maybe they like hp lovecraft or maybe they like you know they're into more serious really like hard realistic role playing games or whatever so there's a huge value to be able to grab drag people in and get new bodies into the world and that's that's how you sustain you know a a player base which is awesome so i think you just need to make sure you manage expectations much like a someone brought up the example of the you know amateur wrestling clubs or you know high school wrestling clubs not being like the wwe and that's probably pretty valid. It's probably a pretty pretty valid analogy. I I like actual plays. I like listening to them because it's a way to experience the game. Like if if I want to learn a new game, uh, but I don't have the luxury of a being able to afford to buy it myself and b getting my friends together to also learn the game, I can listen to an actual play like RPPR or uh, you know any of the numerous one. Like you can't. You can't go to like your podcast app and, and type in actual play without, you know, stumbling across like a couple of new ones popping up every week. But um, that's what they're good for is for learning how to play new games, because, you know, a lot of the times they will explain the rule systems in the middle of it or you'll get an idea of like the tone or, uh, you know, just the general gist of a game. And that's that's one thing they're really good for. Uh, I think you want to talk to your players about especially if they've come from a game like D&D, which is very mechanically different and just in general role-playing different from Delta Green. That's a good time to have that kind of talk with your players when you're like, first, it's an investigative game and you want to you know, follow the hooks and that kind of thing. And second of all, it's a lot different from D&D and I'm not going to be able to pull a critical role on you here. I think that the only time I would listen to an actual play at this point is... Um, if it was of something that I wrote, and even then it would probably still fill me with a furious urge to backseat the whole time. But you're listening to it by yourself. You can scream and rage at your podcast player all you want. I actually had a conversation a while ago where someone was joking about the idea of them running one of a, a scenario that I'd written in which I played, and I was trying to articulate why I wanted nothing to do with that, and why I thought that would be a really bad idea, and I couldn't really come up with anything coherent. Well, then maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. Uh, but I which what which was it? It was the button. Oh hell yeah! I mean, why wouldn't you want someone to run the button? It's awesome. No, no, I would love people to run the button. Um, I just I don't I would not want to play in someone else's. Oh, that's running. what they were asking yes. you. Yeah. To play in a snare that yeah I wouldn't play in a snare that I wrote either because I would just fuck everything up for the for the guy running it and I don't want that. Yeah, no, I definitely wouldn't do that. I 
write my scenarios for other people to play after I play test them, not for me to play. I could probably, I, I, I could see, um, like, like playing the part of NPCs in your scenario I wrote while someone else handled it. Oh, that it. would be pro. That'd be all that right. Because then you know what's going on. That could be pretty cool. And it could be fun as, as someone who wrote it. But yeah, I wouldn't, playing in your own scenario, it sounds kind of like running a PC while you're DMing. I don't know. Even just portraying an NPC in a scenario that I wrote that's being run by somebody else, even that I'd be a little uneasy about. And I don't really know why. So one of the things, you know, we, we talked about, you know, having that kind of conversation with your players. If they, so say you sit down at a table, you know, your local game store and you, you've, a bunch of people have said, you know, on the Facebook group, hey, we're, we, we just heard about Delta Green. We listened to a bunch of actual players really want to play it. And you're like, awesome. I'd love to run Delta Green and you show up. I think the first thing I would try to say is, you know, what have you listened to and what do you like about it? You know, if they say that they've been listening to, I don't really have any good examples of other Delta Green actual players. I don't listen to any, but so say they were like, oh, I love how they do combat because it's really visceral and brutal. You could just, you can take and file that note away and, you know, okay. So they want a kind of a com- more combat scenario, maybe run something a little heavier in that to start with. And, or if they say, oh, I love the investigative aspect and the slow police work of it. All right. So you want to shy away from the combat scenarios, maybe go with something more, you know, investigative. So you can kind of see what they liked about it and not run the exact same thing, but try to use that as a way to engage them. In the description of this episode, I'll recommend a couple of different actual plays that I've listened to over my long actual play listening to career to for Delta Green. You've got a job listening to actual plays? Wait, what? I, I like listening to actual plays a lot. Was it one of you guys who explained to me that the reason why so many modules were bad in the 90s and early 2000s is that TSR told the employees that playtesting the game was no longer considered work, so they stopped doing it? Um, that sounds like something Paizo would say based on some of the modules I've been playing. No, I remember this. I remember this also. It wasn't me that told you this. But they stopped paying employees to playtest, so they stopped playtesting them. Oops. Yikes. Th- yeah, they said it didn't count as work, even though they were developing the scenario. I, I forget what company that was. That's TSR. Yeah, it had to be, but that seems a little counterintuitive. Well, no, it makes it makes sense because if the idea is that you get employees who like it so that they'll do it on their own. But, I mean, here's the problem. When you're doing it in a in an environment like that, you're not playing a game. You're fucking doing quality assurance, and quality assurance goes from playing a game, which is one of the best jobs, to quality assurance, which is one of the worst jobs. Yep. Quality assurance is like actually hell, and no one wants to do it. See also the video game industry. Yes. Bright-eyed enthusiasts go in, broken, soulless husks come out. Yeah, I was gonna say it'd be like telling your video game testers that they can't test for money. All right, so let's wrap up Matt Mercer effect. Uh, I think that it should not discourage people from using actual plays and, and that kind of thing to get new people into the into the world of role-playing games, but I think you should be aware that there are some pitfalls there, and uh, as always, just have that kind of conversation with your players and your handlers, and make sure you're all playing the game you want to play. And if you're not, you know, let somebody else run, or, or go find another table, because there's people out there who want to run every kind of game. Where are they at, though? I mean, so, some of them you can find at r slash not at the opera. What advice do we have uh, from the other side of the GM screen for, for a GM who has someone come to the table and say, you know, I'm, I'm really not liking this because it's not like XYZ. And I know what I would say, and it's probably not very tactful. Well, no, I, w- I would say it tactfully at first, and then if they persist, I would say it less tactfully. So I, I think this may be unpopular advice, uh, but I'm going to give it anyway. Um I would say that un- unless you currently host a, a massively popular uh, online actual play and, and, you know, have made a living at it, uh, you could probably be, be better at it being a handler. I say this 
fully aware that I could be better at being a handler. So, you know, obviously you're not going to change your whole style in one session for one person. But uh, if a bunch of people come up to you and, and are looking for different things, maybe try branching out, see what you like, see if there's something you can incorporate into your toolbox and make a better game for everybody. And maybe there's not, but at least you might give it a shot. And I think if you tell a player, I'll give this a shot, if you give this a shot, you can kind of find the middle ground. No, I think I, I, I understand that, that, you know, you can always, there's always room to improve and there are lessons that you can learn from these shows. Like, I think one of the things that Critical Role does a good job in is that the guy is always thinking, how can I bias the outcome towards something interesting? That's a good advice for anybody is try to think of what the more interest, if you give it, give it's like an Occam's razor to choose the simplest thing. In this case, it's to choose the most interesting thing instead of a result of just being nothing. I know one thing that I learned that I took from Critical Role into my non-Delta Green, into my in-person role playing, because when I'm playing Delta Green online, I can't tell if people are on their phone. But if I notice that at a live table, somebody's on their phone a lot, I try to find something for them to do. So if like in combat, you can, if one person keeps track of initiative, one person can be in charge of making sure the minis get moved around properly. And if you give everybody kind of a job, even if it's kind of a, a menial task, then they stay engaged because they, in theory, don't want to do a bad job. I think there's also something to be said for being resistant to change when it happens in game. Like you realize that one of your, one of your guys is, trying to be super flowery with all their attacks and like you're like all right cut it out that's you're making the game worse and like oh but all my favorite people do it like that would be really frustrating but if if they talk to you ahead of time and like hey i really like this about stuff that i like to watch you know how, can, can, is it okay if i do that can i incorporate it and you can say something like all right let's keep it to a minimum and but let's try it out there's a lot more like I, even i'd be a lot more receptive out of game ahead of time hey this is what i like this is how i got into this world i know you're not you know matt mercer but but how can you know, how can you incorporate things I like about the show? That's different than like forcing it in game. In game, I, I think I would be, I'd take a hard mail and bread. I'd be like, look, you're in the middle of a game. Shut up. We'll talk about this later. That seems really similar to playing the lift. That's very true. Yeah, no, I understand that. And that's, that's an interesting, it's interesting that we're all coming down kind of on the other side, even though when you, when we framed it that way, we were all in favor of it. So we're, I guess we're all just terrible hypocrites who should not be listened to. Bye, everybody. That's a that's that's a given. <laughs> that's a good I don't think I've ever had what I would describe as a like a problem player. Like I've been pretty lucky in that most people I run games for, because I've 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 been I've I guess I've been been difficult for people in the sense that I'm like the guy who wants to shoot the NPC case officer because he's a fucking ghost and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, Can link in the friend. description. You also haven't run a lot of like I, all the problem players I can count on on one on, on my one hand were like. Pick up games at Dungeons and Dragons, like at a friendly local gaming store, and I don't think you've done much of that, correct? No, I've played in those games, but I don't run those yeah, games. So. I think it's just you just haven't been have you haven't had a chance to have bad many bad players yet. So were we able to offer any advice that wasn't just don't have unreasonable expectations? Well, I think I said I think the closest I got to offering real advice aside from that was to try to pick out what you liked about it. So I'm going to use Critical Role as, as an example because I'm more familiar with it. If what you like about that is the heavy role play, then get into that. But make sure that your whole table's into that. Because if you're the only person at the table who's getting into role play, then it's going to be bad for everyone. But there are definitely tables out there where everybody wants to you know, really play a character, and that's awesome. And there are also tables where people just want to crawl the dungeon, and that's also awesome. Just find the right table for you. And if you can't find that table, then create the table yourself, and then show people the show you watched to get there, and create a bunch of people like you, and then play the game with them. And then record that and show the other people that show oh to create another God. table, and then take that table. Recursion. Infinite recursion. Take the interest from the first table, and... It's just actual plays all the way down.
So, gentlemen, I uh, ran my first Night of the Opera game, I don't know, a year ago-ish? Well, more than that. I don't know. It was like in May? Uh, whatever. 2017? Yeah. Yeah. That's two years ago, um, dude. It it was also the first kind of scenario that I wrote outside of uh, stuff that I collaborated on people with or stuff that I, you know, rewrote or cribbed heavily from. It's kind of the first original scenario. Um, Tom, I know, I know you played in it. Uh, and in hindsight, it's hot garbage. So I kind of wanted to run through it with you folks and maybe talk about some tweaks I'd like to make to it and see if you guys can give me some tweaks and just kind of get a little, give our listeners a little glimpse into the scenario writing process. All right. What are your concerns? So I'll give you a brief rundown. So, and kind of the reason I wrote it this way, it's uh, it's a, basically a scenario where a, uh, a deep sea cable laying ship uh, laying cable across the Atlantic snags something. Um, sometimes it was, it was a sarcophagus. Sometimes it was just like a duffel bag, but it, it snagged something on the bottom of the ocean, hauled it up. Um, and then had suffered an explosion um, because of the explosion they had to pull into port for repairs and through uh, uh, I've ran it several different ways through several different means Delta Green is called in because this thing that they pulled up has some sort of a uh, unnatural vibe to it and they go to investigate now there's two right off the rip uh, when I ran it when, when I kind of edited it and, and, and did it for night at the opera um, I thought it would be a really clever twist like nobody's ever done this before. It's really unique to have Cowboys versus the Delta Green players. Um, but I think that is not as unique as I thought it was when I first thought about using it. Well, here's the thing. It's not been done in any published module that I know of, but it's like a lot of shotgun scenarios. A lot of our scenarios are about this subject. But it wasn't that way, I think, when you wrote it. It's, it's possible. Um, and so there's some Cowboys infiltrated on the ship. And they are working at odds with the players. Um, I think the first thing I would do is eliminate that completely. I would make the crew the antagonists, not because they're the bad guys, because they don't want these Delta Green guys poking around. And that would allow for a lot of red herrings and investigative aspects. And you know, uh, in one of the times I ran it, I had a guy who went to the hospital and then like ditched out of the hospital and like booked it. So all the agents thought he was like you know guilty, but he was just trying to score some drugs. So the agents thought the guy was guilty, but he wasn't guilty. He was just intent on committing a crime. So he was about to become guilty. <laughs> well, but that's like not – he wasn't Delta Green guilty. He was just re- regular guilty. He was just, what, Minority Report guilty? <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing I did is I came up with this really cool artifact that was inside the sarcophagus or the thing they pulled up. And it was this uh, – all these all these pieces of hardened skin that when you put them on, they form a full skin suit. And you can tap into the memories of everybody who has w- put their skin into it before. And when like when you take it off, what part of your skin goes with it and adds to the pieces. The problem is... Melon, what's the problem with that? The problem is that no one's ever going to fucking put it on. Yeah, the problem is every time I've ran this, no one's wanted to interact with the suit aside from like, well, we're going to dig a hole, put the suit in it, and cover the suit in concrete. So I think I would want to put something more interesting in the, mytho- in the, in the box. Either some sort of mythos creature... Um, that could become the real antagonist or just some more art- artifacty stuff that's actually needs to be interacted with to make the scenario have a good closeout. It's a sky devil. Well, it's a sky devil and, and they've actually hooked a, they hooked a subject tank. Put Steven Alzis in the box. <laughs> oh, hello. Well, then the solution is not to fucking open it. The solution <laughs> is to put it at the bottom of the ocean so he can't, re- he can't resurrect himself. And then 
doesn't have to be in this fucking game anymore. Nothing will guarantee Melon is never going to interact with the artifact if you tell him the result is that Stephen Alziz enters the world and he becomes a human being capable of having agency. You know what you should do, Kevin? Please. You should make the case officer a ghost. <laughs> I mean, I already have a good ghost case officer, and that honestly would work. I could use my ghost case officer. Here's the problem. You said you had a good one, and I've never seen that scenario where you had a good one. Well, you only played in the bad version. You haven't played no. in the good version. No. Oh. <laughs> so, um, when, I, when I originally wrote this, there were kind of a few central conceits that I wanted to, to do it, and that's usually how I write scenarios. I, I pick... I pick some sort of a set piece or some sort of a central theme and I kind of build around that. And sometimes that shoehorns me into a corner and I can't write anymore where some of my scenarios have died and sometimes it works. And here the key that I wanted to play with was a, a term called force majeure, which basically means that if you're a ship and you're not part of you're not like part of the US, you're not flagged with the United States flag, and you become damaged and have to pull into a US port for repairs, you're not subject to all of the normal rules for pulling into a port like that. You know, you don't have to, you don't get customs inspected. You don't have to check in, that kind of thing. You can basically pull in and you're given like a free pass just to fix that repair and then leave again. And the boat entered under those circumstances, which usually when I ran it, the players had an interesting time trying to like get around that because the captain knows the shit. How do you relate that to the filthy landlubbers like myself? Uh, I'm, I mean, I make it part of the briefing. You know, this ship is here under force majeure and that's why. There's no, uh, there, that's one of the things that tips off. There might be something going on. And then again, in the Cowboys version of the scenario, they had an explosion, which was suspicious. And then I think I also tied some coordinates to it. Um, so for whatever reason, that got Delta Green involved. But I mean, force majeure is a real thing. So I just explain what it is and I explain the limitations of it, which just gives the players an interesting framework. And I think because it's, it's I think of the scenario was just go look at this boat that is, is here normally. It would be a little more mundane, so it adds a little bit of, I don't know, exoticism to it, maybe, perhaps. But it doesn't take over the scenario. It sounds like you could just have a sob sit at sea. <laughs> that's that's the subtitle. Although force majeure is a really useful thing that people should like be aware of, and sob sits are garbage. So that that was a central conceit. I wanted I wanted like an investigative heavy angle so the players would... And, and, and most times I've run this, the players have spent a good deal of time talking to the, you know, talking to the crew talking to the different people there, figuring out what happened. In the again, in the cowboy heavy version, like the cowboys knew what, what was up. Like they knew that the ship would be on this course and it might run over the whatever the bad thing is. So they infiltrated the ship and then when they brought it up, they blew the crane up and then caused all these problems. But again, I think I would just throw all that out. And I could we could probably still have a crane explosion. It could just be, you know, part of the mystery or it could just be disrepair or whatever. But then you wouldn't have the, the kind of weak cowboy aspect. I, you know, I feel like when people are writing scenarios, like just adding outlaws or just adding program is just kind of like akin to reading a recipe. And then it just says add in like a pinch of salt because it's something you can always do to like make things a little bit, you know, taste like a little bit better. Yeah, that's exactly why I added them. And that's exactly why I would like to take them out now. Um, this scenario, actually, uh, I can't remember the player who it was because I'm terrible with names, but he he only had one bond. He was like a gun gun nerd. And he wanted scuba gear to like scuba up to the ship to investigate underneath and everything. And he ended up rolling poorly on the acquisitions and having to like really heavily eat into his daughter's college fund to get the scuba gear. And then I've played in that with that character in like two or three other operas. And that that's come up before. That was like a great character moment for that character. Uh, and he's really leaned into it. And I thought it was really neat because it was just a little kind of a 
kind of a quick moment. It's the first recorded instance I've ever heard of a uh, uh, agent actually getting to use the special training scuba. I think that might have been part of it. He might have had to pay for like this, the class. Uh, no, maybe not. He might have had the special training. I would never actually enforce that special training rule because if the players come up with an awesome master plan to go scuba diving and interact with things underwater and have an adventure, I'm not going to tell them, you can't do that. You don't have the appropriate special training. Like, no, if you want to be a fucking idiot and jump out of a plane, I'm not going to say, oh, you don't have special training parachute. No, I'm going to say, you fucking parachute into that Mayan temple. You fucking parachute into that town under siege by Martians. Kevin, that was a pretty good deep dive on your first scenario and how you'd rewrite it. Uh, But I'm curious to hear about other people's. I'll go next if no one else wants to volunteer. Go for it, Tom. So... My first original scenario was called The Old Buck Lives Again. It's based on a book called Gateways to Abomination by Matthew Bartlett. Uh, The basic premise of the scenario is that an employee of the FCC goes missing while he's investigating a pirate radio station out in western Massachusetts. I like it so far. As the players investigate it, they realize the radio station is actually run by a coven of witches and warlocks. And they're trying to resurrect their master, a corrupt preacher who was killed by a mob in the 18th century. Uh, I feel like it's a little bit janky just because it was the first time I was using stuff like three clue rule and node based scenario design. So it ends up being like a couple of cool set pieces, but the connective tissue between all of it is fairly thin. I think that is absolutely correct because I played in this scenario. You did. And when I read the document that you posted, I thought, this shit is so cool, I didn't get any of it. Yeah. Tom, you're saying that your, the first scenario you wrote was utilizing three clue rule and other like solid writing? Yeah, you're already standards. like miles ahead of my first scenario. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's super, dude. I had the basic, because I'd read the Alexandrian uh, before, but it was my first time really implementing any of that stuff. And I think part of it is that I was pulling from different elements of the book and kind of loosely stringing stuff together. Uh, I have three ideas if I were going to go back to try and make it cohere a little bit better. Do you think you will go back? Yeah, no, I plan to at some point. Uh, So the first thing is that part of the reason it goes into Delta Green's territory is that the radio broadcasts have implied to be weird mental and physiological effects on people who listen to it. And sort of the idea is that uh, the broadcasts are forcing people to act on their darker impulses. And that was sort of meant to justify one of the set pieces, but I think it actually kind of drags things down because it encourages the players not to listen to the radio when you can get some cool stuff out of that. And it also just makes their whole plan really weird and not very internally consistent or just kind of a lot of effort on really dumb things. Until you just told me that, despite having read the scenario, I did not know that the radio signal did that. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's <laughs> Yeah, basically. But I completely that. I completely completely agree. Uh, streamlining and also problem of players are players have seen Videodrome. Players know that the bad signal that causes physical changes and not to be consumed. So if people are by default that cautious, you have to find some other way to entice them to do the thing. But what about that one episode of The Outer Limits where the weird signal makes you immune to ultraviolet radiation? Well, how many people have seen 
the one episode of The Outer Limits versus how many people have seen Videodrome. Let's take a poll, listeners. I have, ne- I have never seen Videodrome. I, you are Canadian. I, Unforgivable. I've never seen Videodrome either. <laughs> I've never seen Videodrome either. I've never seen either one. Yeah, neither. <laughs> you guys are just arguing about two meme subjects back and forth, which is what most of our conversations devolve Welcome into. Welcome to the green box, folks. The green box, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, an item two on your list. Uh, I, I think I've become... I've said before on the podcast that I am kind of the NPC guy. I like interesting NPCs who go Absolutely. after their own stuff. Ah, uh, 100%. And I think one of the problems with this one is that the NPCs are really static, and they just kind of stand around waiting for the players to come interact with them. Uh, like, all the all the witches and warlocks have their own personalities and kind of cool powers and agendas. And I think if I were going to do this again, I would make them way more aggressive and get into the players' faces pretty quickly. Because they've already, they're responsible for kidnapping that FCC employee. They know the government's going to come after them. It doesn't really make sense for them to be on the defense. They should be hitting the players as soon as they realize the players are in town. And so that's something I would want to emphasize is that it's not just an investigation. It's all, it quickly becomes almost like a war where you are actively trying to take these guys down and they're trying to take you down. I'm I'm hoping that that's something that we can get out of the labyrinth is uh like models for making uh, more dynamic enemies for Delta Green. Yeah, you can see sort of how in some of the previews they've released, uh, how most of them have like three stages they come in, sort of the introductory phase and then an escalation, and then it is all out war or complete breakdown with that faction. Which is good because I think they've used the phrase like, you know, the enemies aren't just uh, pop-up targets on a shooting range, you know? Like, they yeah. don't, they only exist. It's it's like the, the Quantum Ogre, except it's just the Quantum uh, uh, bad guy. Yeah, that is something I would want to carry forward. Not just with this scenario specifically, but any kind of cult or another group in other scenarios. Just how do they react when they first make contact with Delta Green? How do they behave once either they effectively become your proxies or your allies or... They realize you're trying to kill them, so they're going to try and kill you. Uh, and the third thing I would do, I have I mentioned at one point to Will, and he really enjoyed this. When I ran it, uh, the Resurrected Preacher was the climax, and so you guys basically had a really unsatisfying boss fight with him. No, it was good. I, I got to, I, uh, the other guy yeeted the C4 at him, and I got caught in the crossfire. Wait, I thought you never got exploded in Delta Green. No, no. I said I've never been killed by a pipe bomb. I've been killed by a binary explosive, and I've been killed by C4. Neither of those are pipe bombs. I mean, you're technically correct. Best kind of correct. You haven't been killed by a pipe bomb yet. I'm going to start creating characters with pipe bombs now that I can play. Well, then I'm going to start carrying credit, creating characters with big athletics that can throw pipe bombs back. <laughs> We're just going to play Hot Potato with the pipe bomb. Uh, And so the thing about this guy was what made... what frustrated me about it is that i realized afterwards that what makes him scary isn't that he's like a big tough killing machine it's that he's a preacher people listen to him he can craft a convincing argument for why modern society is doomed and you should just give up and start worshiping the old ones and so i was thinking it might be too it might be too much of a stretch if you just start having a theological debate with him like in a clearing under the moonlight but I think it would be more interesting if the players, instead of just killing him, if they had to come up with some kind of counter-argument in favor of the modern condition, rather than just throwing it all away and joining a cult. 
I tell you, I, I still like the, all the elements in this one. I think that the first time you ran it, they didn't necessarily all get used, I think, to their fullest effect. But there's a lot of really cool pieces in there. Thank you. A lot of this stuff comes directly from uh, from the book. Like It's a collection of short stories with a lot of really weird, surreal imagery. So I was pulling in a lot of that. I think if I someday in 2090, perhaps... Uh, I'd like to have a one-shot version of this so you could run it quickly in one session and then kind of a bigger campaign scale thing where it's just like a conspiramid of the whole cult and what their various mischief is around town so you can turn it into a sandboxy kind of thing. I guess this raises the question of when like when is a scenario done? Because I thought mine was done, but you know now I want to go back and work on it. Obviously, at some point, Tom, you thought yours was done, but yeah, I also want to go back and work on it. So, like, and actually, Mel, this might be a question for you. So you've actually finished a lot of scenarios. Like, when do you consider your scenario done? Oh, I consider it done when I have no desire to work on it, even when I see obvious improvements that could be made. Because there's all kinds of stuff that you can do to make a scenario better. But um, eventually I just get sick of moving the pieces around, or I say, that would be better, but it would basically require starting over, so I'm not going to do it. And if I was, like, a professional games publisher, that attitude would be poison. But since I'm just a normal man, I have that luxury of just saying, you know what, I'm satisfied with the way it is, it's good enough, if someone else wants to do this other thing, that's up to them. So, I don't think that this is going to help you with your desire to know when your scenario is finished. Because this attitude that I have is clearly the wrong one if you want to be successful, but it's the one I have anyways. Well, you just have the attitude of the knife chopping off what's incomplete and saying, now it's done because it ended here. Hell yes. I don't think Melon's wrong about... uh just deciding I'm not going to work on it anymore. It's good enough as it is. I forget who said it, but there's a quote I heard one time that goes, no painting is ever really finished. The painter just decides to put down the brush. Uh, not You're not finished when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away. But yeah, um, you decide it's finished when... Um, I think I think a more helpful piece of advice I could give is it's, it's finished when someone else could pick it up and run it using um, what you've written. That's, I think, the bare minimum. It doesn't necessarily have to be perfect, but it has to be... If you are if you are writing a scenario and you're writing it for the possibility that someone else could consume it, it's finished when someone else could pick it up and do it. I like hearing when someone's like, hey, I'm going to run this that you wrote, uh, but I'm going to but but I'm gonna do this instead. And I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, that's cool. Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. I tell them always to write down whatever it is that they want to change because that's helpful to me, even if I don't change anything in the scenario itself. Because, like, Kevin, when you ran Autark Sunrise, you had a whole, like, list of changes that you had. And I'm still waiting on that guide to incorporating tarot into the scenario. Yeah, that me you too. promised me, like, a year... Well, no, it's not that you promised me. You said that one of your players was doing, like, a year ago. Yeah, a couple of my players got... Uh, not, not upset, but, like, they knew... They are very familiar with tarot. So they were just like, none of this makes sense. And I was like, well, make it make sense, and the guy will change it. But I was not a priority. But it would be a neat thing to make to have that line up, so then someone with someone could investigate that and get some sort of intelligence or something. Absolutely. I mean, I've 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 done stuff where I've written like, here's how I would run this scenario. I've done it for official Arc Dream stuff, and I've even done it for people on Night of the Opera where uh, they had a scenario that I liked and I wrote something that um, attached itself to that. I did that with Observer Effect, where I I was in the play, I, I play tested it, made some changes, and then I then I ran it like two or three more times on the just I didn't have a real copy of the scenario. And I finally got a copy of the scenario at last Gen Con, and the changes I suggested and how I was running it, they had incorporated. And I was like, oh, I guess I was just ahead of the game. 
So your so that scenario is your fault, is what you're saying? Whoa, whoa, whoa! That is one of my favorite scenarios. You back up. It's it's not his fault though, because everything was already predetermined. Of course. Uh, it was only my fault in the first iteration. And the second iteration is probably my fault. You guys know what I would say, don't you? If I ran on Dark Sunrise and somebody said, I know tarot and none of this makes any sense. Roll sand. Roll sand. Exactly, yes. <laughs> That's one of the things, because um, you guys remember that the King and Yellow Tarot comes from Countdown. And Countdown, it's like, gives this list of, like, where the King and Yellow Tarot comes from. And then it's like, oh, cool, you know, it's there's this deep lore to it. The Emperor is always missing from every set. It's a super rare card. and you got to collect them all like it's Pokemon or some shit. And then it's Red like, card. okay, how do I use it? And it's like, oh, you should do a reading at some point for your players. It's like, well, I don't know what that means. I don't know anything about tarot. <laughs> maybe, right? maybe given that this is a, 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 a splat book, y'all could tell me what I'm supposed to be looking at here instead of, you know, telling me to do it myself. Maybe the tarot rules are in the other Call of Cthulhu splat book. That would not surprise me given, um, you know, what's actually pretty sick though? There's like classes in Pathfinder that use this. It's not a tarot deck. It's a harrow deck. Because you gotta like sell your own line of products, but honestly, guy pulls out those cards. They look cool. They like do stuff in the game. Like you pull out the fool, and now this thing that you summon is also the fool and has like a special property. It's like this is a fun way to incorporate this stupid merchandising into your licensed product. That's a neat gimmick. No, the fool is the player who bought that. No, because if I enjoy it, then it's not foolishness. That's the melon bread guarantee. God damn right. I guess, do Will or Jake have a first scenario they want to? Well, my first scenario was the button, and I think I've already talked about it twice already in the show, so I will let Jake go. Uh, sure. Uh, I don't have it written down because it was on a laptop that is now destroyed. Um, but it's something... How did it get destroyed, Jake? Uh, it's classified. We we office-spaced it, but anyways. You said... You said that you use the firearm to yeet the bullets into it. E- yes, that's what, uh, that's what Dole, <laughs> what? That's what the Is that a technical say. term? So, you yeeted the bullets into on. it? I have a question. Is that yet another scenario that was defeated using firearms? It, it- oh, shit. <laughs> Ooh. Nice. Oh, snap. That's good. No, it's a laptop I really hated. And, uh, you know, I just wanted it to office space it. But um, it predates the new Delta Green. I wrote it. Like back when it was the Call of Cthulhu sup, and uh, I did not know you'd been playing the game for that long. I, Good job. I had been, but you know what? My stupid, ignorant self—I didn't know what Kickstarter was, and I didn't use social media that much, and uh, I missed the—I missed the Kickstarter. Dude, I've been—I didn't back the Kickstarter either. Yeah, for Delta Green. Right. Yeah, I missed the Delta Green Kickstarter, but I was playing Delta Green before that. Anyways, um, the. First one I wrote, it was I was trying to convince my friends to move from D and D. It was like an online group I had. We did like play by post games on like Google Groups or something like that. Um, but uh, I I convinced them to play this modern investigative game, and I helped them create characters themselves. And they didn't know anything about the lore, and it was really awesome. And they made really really neat characters. Uh, but the premise of it was that a preacher's house was bombed. There weren't any like bomb parts or, uh, you know, pieces of like primers or shrapnel or any other material. So like, why did this house explode spontaneously? Um, and the gist of it is it was like, uh, caught up. The players aren't even Delta green, but they're going to end up in it. Like by the end of it, 
and they're caught up in a long running war between two cults, like the cult of Bast and then a cult of Yig. Which is based on a really dumb joke because have you ever have you guys ever seen like a YouTube video where somebody puts a cucumber down on the ground next to a cat? No. What <laughs> yeah, happens? Oh, those okay. are great. Pause for a sec. Go to YouTube and watch Cat versus Cucumber or something like that. Okay, now that the listeners have paused and uh, went and watched the Cats versus Cucumbers compilation, uh, cats really are afraid of cucumbers. And that's because they have, like, evolutionary history of being afraid of snakes. So, of course, like, the cult of Bast is going to hate the cult of Yig. Uh, but that was the premise. And then, so, the preacher the preacher was a Pentecostal preacher. So, you know, like, snake handling and speaking in tongues. And are, are you still watching the Cat vs. Cucumber compilation? I am 100% still watching that. It's it's pretty funny, man. It's good. I'm leaving that in. But, um, so, the, the Yig... Uh, preacher was uh, Pentecostal, so like snake handling and, and speaking in tongues. And it turns out that he had just uh, recently remarried like uh, a serpent person in disguise and she was steering the church towards, you know, Yigism or something like that. Wait, was was he was he aware that she was in disguise? Or was he oh, just like, no. yeah, I'm going to fuck the snake woman? No, I mean, she was like a hot younger woman and he was enamored. He was giving in to lust, but um. Okay, but at some point she drops this guy, and he's like, "Yeah, all right." Yeah, I mean, probably that's probably the way it might have gone. I don't know, but uh, that's what I would have fucking done at that point. Jake, I'm I'm worried at how many of your scenarios involve players having sex with things. Oh, oh, you're gonna love this next part. Then this is becoming a trend. <laughs> now this, no, I've read I read the document that Jake wrote. This is really good. No, you're gonna love this next part because the bombs of the preacher's house were actually grown using menstrual blood and like a ritual incantation because the cult of bast operates out of a fertility or an abortion clinic jesus christ so no no this is i and and i drew the inspiration from this from a historical bombing that took place in one of the cities near where i lived where some uh some like religious nut jobs had bombed an abortion clinic so i just flipped the script and, and ran with it I guess it makes sense if they're Bast cultists because cats have like zero regard for anyone's children except their own. So, like, you want to talk about what happens to the baby before it's born? No, cats will just eat them after they're born. Well, yeah, like the uh, you know whenever a mom mama cat gives birth to a litter, no, if she's too tired, one of the babies ends up getting ate. So they're using like the fetuses and the rituals and stuff like that. Or if a new if a new like male cat takes over the hive, then it kills the children of all the other ones yeah cats cats can be pretty fucked up man they're like for sure fucked up uh so the problems that i had with this was that i had never read the three clue rule or knew anything about scenario design ever so i had like a bunch of interesting things that i wanted to do but i didn't really have much of a way to like connect them all but i mean uh i had been a cop for about a year or so and i was just using it to like stringhorn how i imagine an investigation like this might go and so it was very almost railroady and that one clue led to another led to another um and there were some cool set pieces like uh, a crazy uh greenhouse full of plants grown at the clinic and then like a tunnel underneath the, the church where the serpent woman lived did your players uh realize that it was railroady or do they just go along because they didn't figure it out dude they oh i i mixed in i did uh, what you were talking about earlier as well i, I threw in a because it was a 90s game so there was a cell already investigating the uh the feminist group 
So um, they were caught in the middle of like the conspiracy and the two sides in that ongoing war. And I don't think they noticed how railroady it was because like, of course, you know, they were just following like police procedural, like to the letter. It was very, it was like one of the best campaigns that ever ran. It was like the first Delta Green thing I'd ever done. They had some really, really good characters. Like they had like a female ATF agent who ended up like infiltrating the the group because she went to one of their like meetings and stuff. But uh, if I had a different group of players, I don't think the scenario would have gone as well because it was uh, kind of poorly written. Uh, my pacing was off. I wanted to throw like the exciting things at them like way, way too quickly. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. As long as you have enough exciting things to to pad the whole thing out and just blow your load in the first session. And I also used like a bad monster stat block because I used like the stat block for Bast itself for like when one of the, the, the girls became like a cat lady. And so like Bast is like an elder god in the Call of Cthulhu. Um, what's it called? The Keeper's Guide? Malice Monstorum, Keeper's Handbook. I, I, I think know. I was using like one of the Keeper's Compendium. Yeah, but anyways, so it has like a ninety-nine percent attack, and it does like twelve d six damage or something like that, and it killed somebody in one hit, and they were super mad. Yeah, but does it doesn't like a burst from an FAL also do twelve d six damage? You know, I, but it doesn't have a ninety-nine percent chance to hit though. I mean, it does when I'm through with it. But the so like if I could go back, you know, I'd have done the stat blocks a little bit more intelligently. Um. And I would have done the three clue rule and uh, because of the nature of, you know, fail a roll, halt the mission, which happened more than once. And they had to like actively seek stuff out and I had to come up with more stuff on the fly instead of just drawing to material that was already written. I believe you said when we were workshopping this that you wanted to rewrite this one. Uh, yeah, I might uh, workshop it from memory. Uh, it was a cool scenario. I might do it sometime. Well, you have most of the beats down, so it would probably... Whatever the pieces you put back together, they're gonna get they're gonna be better now if you re- if you rewrite it. So, Melon, tell us about your first scenario. The thing that I ran didn't never run it because I wrote it and I didn't like it that much and I never came back to it. Is one that's based on a classic Call of Cthulhu campaign called Beyond the Mountains of Madness, and this one is based off of a throwaway line in that book about a German steamship returning from Antarctica that gets taken over by a strange creature. And the strange creature, I'm not going to go into the details on um, exactly how it functions and where it's from and what it does and what it represents because that's like a whole campaign book. But essentially this creature, which is one of the reasons why this scenario kind of felt, kind of falls flat, uh, this creature has um, has gone on this boat and because this is, a, this is a ship coming back from an article that's full of like secret treasures taken from the Elder Thing City, both the United States and uh, Nazi Germany want to get a piece of the treasure. And so, coincidentally, both of the boarding parties that they sent out, both of the commando teams, get on board the boat at the same time. And so the game starts after both teams have been cut up pretty bad by the uh, the nasty blob thing. And so they're, like, holed up in a, uh, you know, a boiler, not a boiler room, like a, 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 you know, a storage closet or whatever. And everyone knows a random fact about the monster and its properties, and they have to... A, try and work together to survive, and B, try and accomplish the mission of looting all the artifacts. And the reason why I never ran this scenario and why I kind of looking back, not a huge fan of it, is that it's straightforward in like kind of a bad way, where it's just, you know, roll firearms until you kill it, which is not always bad, but in this case, the monster is kind of boring because it's just a big damage sponge. So 
if I were to run it, I would basically take the suggestion of the, that I wrote at the very end of it, which is just replace the blob thing with a more interesting monster, and then it might work better. And you you mentioned uh, the ship. What else is on the ship? Uh, nothing, because the um, the conceit of the scenario is that the blob thing has eaten everybody by the time you get on board. What if, uh, you know, if you keep, I know you just said you would uh, substitute the blob thing for something else, but like, what if there were other ways to combat the blob thing besides firearms, or what if firearms were ineffectual? Uh, then, what are you, what are you thinking? I, I don't know, uh, I just remember how you've talked about how you can defeat a dark young with chemical defoliant before, what if, you know, this is, uh, you can pour, uh, chlorine on this blob thing or something like that i think that the elder i mean so so here's the problem is that i basically wedded myself to a body of lore where the only thing that works on this creature is extreme cold which is not an item that the characters are going to have to available available to them because if it was as easy as throwing baking soda on it the elder things probably would have thought of that so basically by making this a continuation of a vast body of backstory i robbed myself of the my ability to use my imagination so the best way to fix it would be to take the elements that I like, remove them from this scenario, and start over with something else, so that I could do something like what you just said. I'm impressed that for your first scenario that you went with this framework of the players have conflicting objectives and might be trying to kill each other. Yeah, so it's something that I read uh, in an Eclipse Phase module called Million Year Echo. Eclipse Phase has like five modules, and this is one of them, and... From what Sounds I the best one. yeah, from what I hear, it's quite good, and it's a similar framework. This scenario, I um, maybe rehabilitate it, but I, I feel like there's a lot of other stuff that's demanding my attention right now that I would rather spend time working on. That's all we have for you this week. In the description of this episode, you'll find links to the R and Night of the Opera subreddit and Discord server, and to our various social media pages. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Until next time, we'll be in touch.